Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. find Hebrews chapter 13 on page 1009 in the Black Pew Bible if you want to turn there. Tonight we are thinking about what the gospel produces in those who believe in Jesus and how we are to live in light of believing the good news about Jesus. Let me invite you to consider these things from Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This is the word of God. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that it would be so to us this day. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Be our teacher and our helper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In this passage... God calls Christians to love others. In verse 1, to continue loving the family of believers. At verse 2, to love strangers. At verse 3, to love and remember the imprisoned and the mistreated. And that's your outline. And let's think about the first thing. Verse 1, Christians should keep loving the family of God. Notice the language, let brotherly love continue continue let's consider the context of this command and then the content of it first the context we're at the end of the book of hebrews we've turned to the last chapter of hebrews which in this chapter strings together a long list of very short exhortations they're all tied in to what he said at the end of chapter 12 At the end of chapter 12, beginning of verse 28, he said, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. And he goes on. Don't let the chapter division get in your way of the argument he's making. We are receiving a kingdom, he says. It is a gift. It is a gift of grace. It is already and not yet. It is the kingdom not of this world that has come into this world, has come into our lives if we have believed in Jesus, the king of this kingdom. We belong to it. We are its members, its citizens. But the glory and its fullness we have not yet seen. We await while we enjoy the grace of this kingdom and the way that this kingdom shapes us is it builds in us a grateful heart and we should be he says grateful and let us worship God he says and let us love others this is the connection the love is not unrelated to the other the theology issues forth in ethics the grace issues forth in works 
of gratitude. And it would be a mistake to reverse the order of that. But it is so easy to do. Preaching and believing the gospel of good news is hard in this way. Because the bent of our fallen hearts always wants to sneak in our works into the way that we are saved. One of my favorite presidents, he doesn't have to be yours, he was not a preacher, granted, gave a Christmas address in which, as presidents do, in which he started to proclaim the good news, as he has done in in other speeches he's given, by quoting John 3.16. But then he turned it into what I would argue bad news. Here's part of the 1983 Christmas address I referred to. Jesus, and he goes on, he speaks of Jesus as the Prince of Peace and the hope of the world. It's, it's beautiful. He goes on, Jesus is the living assurance that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son so that by believing in him and learning to love each other, we could one day be together in paradise. Now, what's wrong with that? Did you hear how he, we might say, ruined the good news? Probably quite accidentally. And I'm not saying he didn't himself believe the gospel, and I don't know the man personally. But he almost quoted John 3.16 until he didn't. Did you hear what he slipped in? He said, the way to paradise is by believing in Jesus and by learning to love each other. Now, that is not the gospel. That is anti-gospel, stated that way or misunderstood. Being unloving and self-centered is what we are saved from. Becoming loving is what we are saved to. And so salvation is by his love for us, not our love for him. Theologian Dr. Roger Nicole illustrates it this way. If you could save your, if we could save ourselves from self-absorption, it would be like if your house was burning down, but you had escaped. And I came to you and said, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the fiery house and died. You would say, what an idiot. But if you were still in the burning house... And I said, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the fiery house and saved you, but died myself. You would say, behold, how he loved us. So if you can reconcile yourself to God, Jesus' death is not loving, it's stupidity. If, however, you are alienated from God, dying, unable to save yourself due to your own evil and unloving heart, Jesus' death will mean everything to you. Look, if you think loving people is a work you do to be saved, you're really saying Jesus isn't enough. His death and resurrection isn't adequate. His love expressed in that isn't enough that way of thinking though will end up crushing you with fear if you realize you haven't done enough because you've loved people so little 
Or it'll make you arrogant, looking down your nose at all those people who don't love others as well as you're doing. And it will make you look up to God with what you think your love deserves. Either way, you'll end up self-absorbed. I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. Or I'm doing so well. Look how loving I am and what I deserve. But the gospel is different than that. It is God's way to actually get you to really love others. Because it says you have been really loved by the Lord in your unloveliness. When you were unloving, hating him and hating others, he loved you and gave himself for you. In your continuing failures as Christian people to love others, he remains faithful in loving you. And in being loved by him so freely and so graciously and so lavishly, you can learn to love others without demanding to be loved by them in return. You already have a storehouse of love in Jesus from which to draw. So no, the writer here isn't adding love to the command so that we can save ourselves. Don't misunderstand him that way. We're saved by Christ, by his ministry for us, not our ministry for him. By the fruit of his love for us, not the fruit of our love for him. Now that's the context. Notice the content. Notice he does not command that we begin to love. He says, let love continue. Did you see that? He knows that the principle of love has already begun in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. Where did they get that love? Why did it begin? They got it from God in the gospel. 1 John 4 verse 19. We love because he first loved us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. There is a principle of love that is placed in the new heart because God has come into your heart and he is the God of love. And the father of his family has given you in your heart a love for his family. Who is it that you're supposed to love here? Let the love of the brethren continue is the language. It's it's not so much let brotherly love continue in the sense that uh, the love is brotherly. It is that the love lands on the brothers and the sisters. It's, It's not so much that he's saying love like siblings love one another. And maybe that's a relief to you to hear because you grew up in a home where siblings didn't love one another very well. Love, he says, because we are brothers and sisters. The family of God is our new priority. And this is nothing surprising and it's nothing new. Jesus himself in John 13 most famously said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why then do we need to be told to let this love continue? In other words, to not stifle it or quench it. 
Well, can you guess? To dwell above with saints we love? Now that will be the glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, that's a different story. They'll disappoint you. They'll frustrate you. They'll step on your toes. They'll kick you in the shins every once in a while. These are the saints on earth. They are not yet souls made perfect in heaven. Though we await that. Maybe the people you find difficult to love are the people you have doctrinal differences with. Sometimes that's an issue. I mean, who doesn't have doctrinal differences with others? That doesn't negate the command. The great evangelist George Whitfield was a committed Calvinist. His friend from his college days, John Wesley, was a committed Arminian. Wesley tried to argue with Whitfield on these issues. Whitfield argued back. Of course, they had a a good, healthy, brotherly debate. Whitfield eventually wrote to Wesley, quote, My honored friend and brother, hearken to a child who is willing to wash your feet. I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, if you would have my love confirmed towards you, why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul, which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided. Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus. And whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate to others. Now look, they both thought the other was wrong over certain issues. And they had debated those. Neither would budge. It's not that Whitfield thought the differences didn't matter, but that Wesley was his brother and neither would change his mind, though both believed in salvation by the blood of Jesus. Their significant disagreement wasn't worth cultivating hatred towards one another within the body of Christ. Other believers different than you need you to love them. And you need other believers different than you to love you. It's a classic illustration. A newer Christian visited an older Christian he had met to talk about his dislike of organized religion. He asked if it was okay if he just followed Christ on his own without having to be involved in the church. The old man didn't say anything, but he simply leaned forward and with tongs, took a glowing hot coal from the fireplace and he set it on the hearth and they sat in silence as it went from bright orange to cool black. The young man had his answer. Are you trying to go it alone? You may show up here for public worship but never really talk to anyone. Maybe you aren't trying to make even one friend across the congregation. Nobody you're thinking of all week long at all. Not praying for any single other believer. That's neither good for you nor for them. We need each other. 
We need people in this room to know us and love us, and we need to know and love them. Now, look, I would commend this congregation at Redeemer. You are a loving congregation. But it could be that you're new here and you haven't experienced that. And it just might be that you've been here a while and you've been overlooked in this and you don't feel the same way. It hasn't been our intention to overlook anybody, but we certainly haven't been perfect in this. And I would ask you to forgive us and be patient with us if you haven't been loved well. Let us seek to love one another more and more. Let it continue. Let it blossom and bloom, the writer says. And so I simply ask you, my brothers and sisters and The body of Christ has your love for the brothers and sisters in the body begun. And if not, you probably need to be saved. And if it has begun, then let it continue. That's the first point. Second, Christians should be hospitable to strangers. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares the first command back at verse one mentioned brotherly love you know the name philadelphia the city of brotherly love it comes from phila love and adelphus brother here he says love strangers you've heard of uh, xenophobia the fear of strangers here he says phila xenia love Strangers. This is what he means by show hospitality to strangers. He means love these particular kinds of people. And I think in light of verse 1, particularly loving Christians you don't know who need your help. It, it ought to have an expression in practical ways of welcoming, wel- welcoming them into your life. And also seeking their welfare when they're among you. What he has in mind here is in the early days of the church under the Roman Empire, there was a, a lot of travel between cities and towns. I mean, the incredible road system of the Romans made that, made that, uh, made that really possible. So Christians often did travel, some to preach the gospel, some because they were fleeing persecution in certain places. But arriving in a new place is never easy. To be a foreigner, to be not from around here, can leave you feeling isolated, rejected, lonely, vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Even like believers in our own day who've come to Salem Springs in our community because they're looking for a better life or because they're a new student at JBU or or because they're fleeing crushing poverty or crime in the places they're from. In the early church, Christians relied on Christians for hospitality. Inns in that day weren't like holiday inns and Hampton inns and resident inns that we have today. I mean, think of more like the innkeepers of Les Mis, right? You're, You're talking about innkeepers and inns in the ancient world that were infamously filthy and outrageously expensive and promoters of prostitution and immorality, the brothels were usually there. You could get robbed in the end. You could be extorted. It was not a healthy place 
for believers, usually. So the writer says, love these strangers, these believers who've come to town. And he says, don't neglect it. Don't neglect this. Now, it's just possible that you and I are neglectful. Why are we neglectful in these things? Let me just suggest fear, pride, ignorance. Maybe we're afraid of people. Though I have to say, we've had a lot of visitors over to Redeemer, over at Redeemer in the last six, seven years, and I, I can't think of a, single, of a single one of them that would have pulled a gun on, on any of us. Now, obviously, we need to be wise about these things when we're helping a total stranger. But God can make us wise and courageous. Maybe it's pride, though, that holds us back. We immediately size people up we've never met, and maybe we dismiss half of them as unworthy of our time and attention. Or maybe it's a different kind of pride. If you think your home is not Southern Living Magazine photo ready, you know, then you say to yourself, I can't possibly have people over. Maybe you're worried it's too cluttered. It's, um, you know, kids' toys are everywhere and all over. And, uh, you know, I think you can go ahead and have people over when your house looks like that. That's fine. I also think you can jam it all into the closet 10 minutes before they arrive. The Wanger family does this a lot, right? Um, just don't ask to hang up your coat in our house. <laughs> Maybe your pride, though, is shyness, not wanting to be known because you think people might think less of you the more they know, which is a way of protecting yourself built on pride. Or maybe it's just ignorance. I mean, in the sense of that you've been here so long, you've uh, made friends, you have a circle of people you enjoy being around, people who love you and care about you, and you just haven't thought again about how hard it is to show up at a new place where people already know each other. A small church like ours can be hard that way. It's not big enough to stay comfortably anonymous for very long, even if you wanted to. There are churches of multiple thousands. You can go and be anonymous as long as you want, and sometimes they're designed to give you that kind of anonymity. You you really can't do that. In a small place like this. And we don't want you to remain anonymous here. But we do have to think intentionally to to make people feel welcome. Because it doesn't just happen. We can't just say somebody else will do that. Somebody else is doing that. We shouldn't presume that way. And listen, you don't have to be an extrovert to say to somebody, Hi, my name is shy, introverted, self-conscious, and scared person. What's yours? Really? Yours too? There's a lot of us here. Welcome to Redeemer. Where are you from? How'd you find us? I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Introduce them to others. Just turn to another shy, introverted, self-conscious, scared person and say, Have you two met? You share a lot in common. Be open to forming a friendship. You can't make everybody your best friend. I get that. But you can be friendly to everyone while people figure out who their intimate companions will be. 
Don't leave it to others. Set the pace here, he says. Don't, don't neglect this aspect of love. Maybe invite people over for a meal or invite them out for a meal if you feel like your home is too messy. Some, he says, did you catch the end of it? Verse 2, some have entertained angels unawares. He's surely thinking here of Abraham's three guests. Abraham saw them coming from afar and he killed the calf and had a meal laid out for them and he didn't know it at the time but two of them were angels of the Lord and the third was the the uh, angel of the Lord uh, likely the the physical manifestation of God in human form they all appeared as men and the writer here may be saying you may already have met an angel and didn't know it he may also be saying something like this the stranger you welcome may just be a bigger blessing to you than you ever thought you could be to them. You may think you're going to encourage them, and the Lord actually encourages you through them. Why not give that a try? Love them, of course, because they need to be loved, not because of what you'll receive. But you never know. You may end up more blessed than them. And so he says, let us love the brothers and sisters. Let us love the strangers. And finally, he says, Christians should be compassionate toward the imprisoned and the mistreated. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. By the prisoners and the ill-treated here, he again likely has in mind those who are suffering because of their faith in Christ. In other words, he's probably not so much referring to like just ministering to criminals, uh, people in prison, so that that's an excellent ministry to do. But he probably has in mind those Christians who are suffering persecution. This, verses 2 and 3, is an extension of verse 1, letting brotherly love or love of brothers continue. And, uh, and though it's not that significant in our nation, certainly in our city, Not yet, anyway. Who knows? It goes on all around the world every moment of every day. We have brothers and sisters who are tortured and killed and imprisoned and impoverished and orphaned and widowed and deported and abused and marginalized all over this planet every hour. Of every day. Remember them, he says. According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions. Now, that's not all Christians, but it includes Christians. According to the U.S. Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or their surrounding neighbors. Open Doors, which is a ministry that tracks persecution worldwide, has a watch list of the 50 worst nations. In the first 10, persecution is extreme, widespread, frequent, and severe. You know what those 10 nations are? North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and Eritrea. The next 20 nations on the list are places where Christians are very highly 
persecuted. Libya, Nigeria, Maldives, Saudi Arabia, India, Uzbekistan, Vietnam, Kenya, Turkmenistan, Qatar, Egypt, Ethiopia, the Palestinian territories, Laos, Brunei, Bangladesh, Jordan, Myanmar, Tunisia, and Bhutan. And the last 20 of the 50 rank in persecution where they are highly persecuted. Not very highly or extremely, but they make the top 50 are Malaysia, Mali, Tanzania, Central African Republic, Tajikistan, Algeria, Turkey, Kuwait, China, Djibouti, Mexico, Comoros, Kazakhstan, the United Arab, Arab Emirates, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Mauritania, Bahrain, Oman, and Colombia. The U.S. doesn't make that list. We are not as we sit here today, a highly persecuted people. And many of us living here today may never visit any of those places or ever make contact with any of those persecuted. What can we do? We can learn. We can learn about them. And I'd commend opendoorsusa.com. They'll take you to each nation and give you anecdotes and information. You can have folks like this on your heart. You can pray for them. The Apostle Paul in Colossians and Ephesians said, pray for me. I'm an ambassador in chains. That's a way to remember them, simply to pray. Speak up for them, certainly. Why do it? End of verse 3. You also, he says, are in the body. And here he probably doesn't so much mean that, hey, you are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but that you actually also are an embodied spirit living in a wicked world, liable to the same miseries of this life. And you can imagine, you can imagine if you haven't experienced the kind of suffering. And you may yourself experience it someday. So he says, remember the imprisoned. Remember the the mistreated. Remember the weak and the vulnerable, the confined and the suffering. Let me just say it this way, the the sick and the stuck. Love those who are sick. I mean, these are the people you and I live with. J. Vernon McGee says, when I was seriously ill, and he had cancer, maybe what he's referring to. When I was seriously ill, I had the opportunity to experience this love. A letter from a dear lady made me shed tears. Dear Dr. McGee, I'm inactive now, and I'm not able to do anything. I prayed to God that I would be able to take your disease upon myself so that you would go on with your ministry. You could pray for people who are sick. You could visit the sick and encourage them, visit the lonely. Be a friend of them. There are a lot of people stuck, but not in prison. There are a lot of people stuck in what you might call the prison of nursing homes. Now look, the care may be fantastic. The food may be great. It may be everything you could want in a first century world. But the feeling of being trapped, that's a different thing. My parents live in assisted living. They're 88 years old. My mom, some of you know, has late stage dementia. She doesn't move without being moved by somebody else. Dad, however, has all of his faculties and a car. And one of his biggest concerns is having the car 
taken away. Because then he loses his freedom. See, what happens is many of the people there run out of money. And I've heard the story dozens of times from my dad. People run out of their own money. And the facility, the one he's in, they don't throw them out. They promise to keep them to the end. But the facility, of course, takes everything they have to pay the bills before they turn to the government for funding. It's not unreasonable. But what happens is sometimes people who have all their faculties have no vehicle and they feel imprisoned. These men have said to my father, we, I hate it here. I'm a prisoner. You and I could visit people like that. We could run to the store with them, do a little shopping, take them out to eat. We could visit them in their rooms. We might meet some lonely Christians we could love. Jesus in Matthew 25, let me close with this extended word from him. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And so because Jesus sought us when we were spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, may he give us such love for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the great lover. Jesus, that you loved us and took us to be your bride, your church, your beloved. You hold on to us, you keep us, and you give us everything. And we pray that you would help us to love others as we have been loved by you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.